0: and welcome to the sixth episode of our limited series, Audio Judo Does Jazz. I'm Kyle from the podcast Audio Judo, and I'm here to introduce this episode. But first, I want to mention that both Audio Judo and Audio Judo Does Jazz are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. If you are interested in any genre of music, music history, or just want to discover great new music, Pantheon has got at least one podcast that you'll love. Visit www.pantheonpodcasts.com to see the entire catalog. On this episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz, Chris gets in-depth about legendary jazz saxophonist Charlie Yardbird Parker, a hugely influential figure in the development of bebop jazz. He's noted for his incredibly fast solos and for bringing ideas like rapidly passing chords, variations of altered chords, and chord substitutions to jazz. Here's Chris to tell you a little more.
1: i am a terrible salesman. I've yet to inform you, my beloved listeners, that a major part of my effort in introducing you to jazz takes place on Facebook. I'm not a Facebook shill, but it's a nice platform that has allowed me to post a song of the day, which I've been doing four or five times a week. So far, I've posted more than 30 songs by more than 30 different artists, giving you more than 30 options in which to find out what you like. I can only do so much in a single episode about a single artist. What I like doing is finding an adjacent artist to the one I feature. So, leading up to the Miles Davis episode, I posted the song Maiden Voyage by Herbie Hancock, Miles' pianist in the 1960s. I posted Nina Simone's version of I Love Ya Porgy, a song Miles would cover on his Porgy and Bess album. Leading up to John Coltrane, i posted recordings by johnny hodges and dexter gordon two of coltrane's influences so please do yourself a favor and like audio judo does jazz on facebook and discover more artists to see what you like and what you don't if you don't want to be on facebook please write me at chris at audio and i'll send you a list of the songs and now back to our program When I first approached my friend Matt from Audio Judo with the idea of this podcast, the subjects and composition of the episodes seemed to have chosen themselves. That aspect of the podcast had been easy. Basically, they are all my favorite artists. I knew enough about their respective careers to pass on a short history lesson. I knew enough about their discographies that I could single out the requisite records from each of them to make it worth your time. The only challenge is to figure out how to present them in an interesting light. You know, in order to destroy my competition who is also trying to introduce jazz into your lives. I've heard Matt complain to Kyle for choosing albums that require a lot of research in Audio Judo's record reviews, like Prince's Purple Rain or The Beach Boys' Pet Sounds or Stevie Wonder's Talking Book. So much has been said about those albums, they not only have to cover what's already been said, need to add something interesting to the mix in order to not sound like everybody else. It's a tough job. Original thoughts are hard to come by these days. It's with trepidation that I approach a subject like the great alto saxophone player, Charlie Parker. One, because his story is so well known in jazz circles, I have nothing new to add to his history that's already set in stone. He's pretty much the dividing line between music that came before him and all the music that he inspired that came afterwards. Two, while his playing is mostly glorious and beautiful, his life is as sad as it gets, especially toward the end. Prior to my research for this podcast series, he had been the only artist I chose to cover whose music I didn't fully love. And that feels like I'm crapping all over the gospel of jazz. I mean, how can that be? Clearly, Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people have listened to his recordings and thought he played the most beautiful music ever. He has inspired generations of musicians to pick up an instrument and express themselves. His believers pore over his playing, over every last note and phrasing, over every alternate take, like it's biblical scripture or lines from Shakespeare. In an earlier episode, I said that his would be one of the four faces on that Mount Rushmore of jazz. This podcast series would be incomplete, and it would be an unconscionable decision on my part if I chose to avoid him. He is, in a sense, the glue that holds my entire series together. Would Miles Davis have gone to New York City if not for Bird? Would Thelonious Monk and others have had that final ingredient of Bird's phrasing in order to help create the music known as bebop? Charles Mingus would have been a world-renowned cellist or bassist and a fine composer. But without that element, that requirement of birds playing, would his music have been so complete? Would Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane, Eric Dolphy, Rahsaan Roland Kirk, and Ornette Coleman have had that inspiration to pick up a saxophone if not for him? So what's my deal? Who am I to cast aspersions on this man? After a lot of research... I've come to the understanding that it's not him, it's me, for several reasons. It starts with a compilation. My introduction to the music of Charlie Parker came from a compilation album on the Verve label called Jetanus Jazz, or maybe it's Round Midnight. It's hard to tell. They're both written on the cover. I was not hip enough to avoid a compilation at the time, just wanted the supposed best music compiled in a manner I could easily digest. On the cover is a drawing of a heavyset saxophonist with several song titles in the lower right quadrant. Laura... Autumn in New York, I'll Remember April, a couple of others. At the time, these song titles sounded important, like they were the songs that were about to become the next thing I fell in love with. All I knew about Charlie Parker at the time is that he might well have been the best that ever played. Did that mean he was better than Coltrane? Was that possible? I couldn't wait to find out. The album contained a bunch of ballads. Each song ended after three minutes what the hell is this my 20 year old self asked this isn't as good as coltrane this isn't as great as mingus this isn't even close not a single one of the songs sounded memorable to me that album didn't last very long in my collection another somewhat early encounter i had is hearing another compilation of his in the somewhat prevalent not sure how popular compact jazz series it's also found on the verve label and while I remember some of the songs sounding better to me, they were jazzier, bebopier. Some of the songs were actually the same songs as on the other compilation. 0 oh, for 2. What the hell? This is not what I signed up for. Meanwhile, my brain burned when I listened to Coltrane. I felt Mingus's music to be deep and heavy and swinging like nobody else had ever heard before. With Monk, it felt light and breezy and layered and connected to every one of his songs. I connected with Miles. I felt in tune with Eric Dolphy. Dolphy sounded more like Bird than Bird did. It doesn't make sense, I know. Eventually, I picked up the Charlie Parker Jam Session album. It had also been released on the Verve label. He recorded for Verve in his later years, when he had already achieved worldwide notoriety. Some of them were his best-selling albums, like his Charlie Parker with Strings album. You would think I would have learned my lesson with Elms and the Verve label, but no, I'm a glutton for punishment. It's a reoccurring theme in my life. But this one was called Jam Session. It's right there in the title. It's got Johnny Hodges and Benny Carter also playing alto sax. According to the liner notes, these guys are three of the greatest alto saxophone players who ever played. And they came together to jam. It's right there in print. A young Oscar Peterson, one of the best piano players you're ever going to hear, anchored the band. Ben Webster played tenor sax, Ray Brown is on bass, Barney Kessel on guitar. Based on what I read in the liner notes, these are among the greatest musicians of all time. Except, to my now 21-year-old ears, I found it boring. I felt as angry as the substitute teacher Mr. Garvey in Key & classic Substitute Teacher sketch, when he sent A.A. Ron down to the office to see Principal Oshag Hennessy. Bird was being insubordinate and churlish. Finally, after going 0 for 3, I picked up Charlie Parker's Complete Dial Masters Volume 1 album, and I finally got it. This is what I've been waiting for. I felt relieved to hear what everyone else had been raving about. Looking back, my first problem with Bird had been expectations. Expectations have been known to ruin anything from movies, to meals, to books, to dates, to presidencies, to legendary jazz musicians. What I heard in the music did not compute with what I'd read and had been told about them. This is the innovator who broke the mold and helped change the music forever? I bought the myth. I bought the t-shirt. Still got the shirt, as it turns out. It's got a huge hole near the armpit. I wanted the best, and I didn't get the best or at least my 20-year-old ears didn't hear the best. Poor first impressions are enough to delay or even derail you from even heading in a certain direction. I implore you to give Charlie Parker a shot. The best place to start listening to Bird is either on his Dial Masters, which he largely recorded in Los Angeles, or on his recordings on the Savoy label, started in 1945, which he recorded in New York. These are his earlier masterpieces. These are the songs that helped start a revolution in the music. Let this be your first impression of the music of Charlie Parker. was Bird Gets the Worm, one of my favorite songs of Charlie Parker's. Contradicting something I mentioned in the Miles Davis episode, Miles more than keeps up with Bird quite nicely on this song. I hope I didn't give the impression that Miles couldn't keep up, he did so and admirably. I just think he found his true voice later on. In case I have lost any one of you, let me give you a bit of a timeline and hit some of the major points of Charlie Parker's life story. He was born in 1920 in Kansas City, one of the more important hotbeds in jazz around the country, along with New York City and New Orleans. He started playing saxophone at the age of 11. Three huge events in his lifetime took place in 1936. First and foremost, at the age of 15, he played in a jam session with members of Count Basie's big band. Losing track of the chord changes and sounding like he didn't know what he was doing, the drummer for the band, Joe Jones tossed a cymbal at him in order to tell him to get off the stage. Much is made of this event in the movie Bird, directed by Clint Eastwood and starring Forrest Whitaker in the title role. Parker used this moment as motivation in order to improve. Later that spring, he got married before he had not yet turned 16. Shortly after he turned 16, he got into a car accident. Parker broke three ribs and fractured his spine. The accident led to his troubles with painkillers and opioids, especially heroin. He struggled with his addiction to heroin for the rest of his life. In 1939, he moved to New York City. He eventually got a job as a dishwasher at a Harlem eatery called Jimmy's Chicken Chick in order to watch his favorite musician, the great piano player Art Tatum. Bird, while playing the song Cherokee, soon discovered a new vocabulary within the song. He said he could hear the music in his head, but couldn't play it for the longest time. In 1940, he met his musical soulmate, Dizzy Gillespie. The two of them bounced around for several years, playing in big bands and discovering this new music they were after. As I mentioned in a Thelonious Monk episode, young players from all around New York City made it up to Minton's Playhouse in the early 1940s and started creating a new approach to music. Bird and Diz recorded one classic track after another throughout 1945. Groovin' High, Dizzy Atmosphere, Salt Peanuts, Hot House, Billy's Bounce, Now's the Time, and Cocoa, to name just a few. At the end of 1945, Gillespie had been invited out to play at Billy Berg's Club in Los Angeles, and he brought Bird out with him. The Troubles started on the train out there. Bird had a hard time getting his heroin fix. After several weeks, he finally found a source in LA named Moose the Mooch. He immortalized him in song, and within his recording contract for Dial Records, a clause sent half of the proceeds from recording into the dealer's pocket. was Moose the Mooch, a song about Charlie Parker's heroin dealer in Los Angeles. Unfortunately for the Mooch, and for Bird, I guess, Moose would eventually be thrown into jail. The trip didn't go quite as well as everyone had hoped. As much incredible music had been recorded at that time, bebop music didn't immediately take over the world. I think about songs like Rapper's Delight by the Sugarhill Gang and The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. As classic as these songs are, it would take quite a long time before rap artists became a household name. The same is true of Bebop. The audiences in L.A. came out to see this new thing. However, outside of the musicians who were dazzled by this new approach, most jazz fans in L.A. found it too frantic and turned away. On the eve of the night prior to flying back to New York, Parker sold his ticket for heroin money. Dizzy Gillespie left town and the gigs dried up. Parker signed with Dial Records. When the mooch was arrested, Parker turned to drinking as much as a quart of whiskey a day. Soon, he was living in an empty garage. He was cut off from work, from his friends, and going through withdrawal from heroin. He showed up to one of his recording sessions so drunk, he missed the first few bars of the solo on the song Max is Making Wax and had to be physically propped up in order to play on "Lover Man." Still, Those who loved him swear by every note he played, regardless of the shape he was in while he played it. Things didn't go well that night. He walked nude into the hotel lobby, he fell asleep with a lit cigarette in his mouth, and the firemen had to shake him to wake him. Policemen later beat him. It was a whole thing. Shortly afterwards, he would be committed to the Camarillo State Hospital for six months. That was Relaxin' at Camarillo, one of my favorite tracks from Charlie Parker, with the beautifully named Dodo Mamorosa on piano, who played on several of Parker's sessions. You could probably guess the remainder of Parker's career. While musicians and artists fawned over the Savoy and Dial records, the greater record-buying audience did not. It wasn't until he signed to Verve Records that his recordings began to sell at all. He recorded the With Strings album, another that featured songs from south of the border, and other more mature work. Fame and popularity mingle with gigs and erratic behavior and meeting his common-law wife, Chan, and having a son named Baird and a daughter named Pri. I'm drastically slicing and simplifying the remainder of his life, but if it interests you, everything you need to know about him is out there on the internet. His life ended poorly. While out on the West Coast in March 1954, his daughter Pre, not yet 3 years old, born with a heart defect and cystic fibrosis, died of pneumonia. It destroyed him, obviously. It would anybody in that situation. Fear, distrust, and paranoia crept into his life. He would die a year later. The official causes of death were lobar pneumonia and a bleeding ulcer. But Parker also had an advanced case of cirrhosis and suffered a heart attack. The coroner estimated him to be somewhere in the vicinity of 50 to 60 years old. He died at the age of 34. I don't know that I can do the man's life justice. I don't know that I can paint a proper enough picture of who he was. So far, it seems like I've merely presented a degenerate drug user. But like all of us, I'm sure he was a different person depending on who he was with and when he was with them. He was both generous and miserly, a loving husband and father at home, and a philanderer on the road. chronic addict who lectured younger musicians about the dangers of drugs. He was charming, he was brilliant, he was troubled, and he had mental health issues. His genius didn't just come out through his alto saxophone. Apparently, he could talk to people about any topic imaginable. Quantum theory, nuclear physics, it didn't matter. He knew something about everything it makes sense all these musicians are brilliant you would have to be in order to listen to the drums to hear what he's doing listen to the bass to hear what he's doing and listen to the piano to hear what he's doing all while playing in real time anticipating and prodding and elevating the music for every member in the band That was ornithology, which by definition is the academic study of birds. After this episode, I got a feeling that I'm going to study a lot more bird in the future. In 1993, you might remember Charles Barkley had an advertising campaign for Nike where he exclaimed, I'm not a role model. I understand what Charles meant. He wanted young kids to look up to people in their own lives. Fathers and mothers and relatives and people in the community who did the hard work for the right reasons. Still, Charles Barkley is a role model, as is everybody else we see. He may have been a poor role model at times, and young kids make poor choices sometimes. But don't ever forget that you're a role model, and you're a role model, and you're a role model. I'm like Oprah Winfrey in here, handing out role model statuses. One thing I've learned about being a parent is that kids watch us closely all the time. We are all teachers, whether we're paid to be one or not. And outside of parenting, it's the toughest job. I bring this up in this episode because Charlie Parker is the poster child for addiction in jazz. Hundreds, if not thousands, if not far more, all tried heroin because they knew Bird took it. They wanted to feel what he felt. They thought it might help them play better. Perhaps they thought it might open themselves up to something they hadn't experienced before. I thought it might lead them down the road to genius. My initial instinct as someone who doesn't know crap about addiction had been to start wagging a finger and talk about being a better role model, to make better choices, and to go on about how he squandered his genius. Then I heard Chan Parker, his widow, in a documentary, refer to all the pain he had been in. Ever since that car accident at the age of 16, pain he felt had been unbearable his entire public life every recording every breakdown every drink every episode every fix had all been about trying to get rid of the pain no idea what it's like to be charlie parker no genius no pain to stomach no prejudices to endure I'm not even going to address those poor souls who followed him into the abyss of addiction instead i'm going to address Everyone else. Why do we follow the people that we do? Why do we look up to people who have achieved fame and fortune? Aren't there enough programs and behind the scenes documentaries that have told us that fame and fortune wrecks pretty much everyone? So many of the stars we know come from broken homes and are in search of something they may never find. What does it say about our country, about the American dream? that what we all strive for and what so many have achieved is an empty shell of what we think it's all going to be. Happiness comes from within, from our own achievement, from the work that we put into our own lives and serving others. I heard a quote from writer Hubert Selby Jr. who said, To pursue the American dream is not only futile, but self-destructive, because ultimately it destroys everything and everyone involved with it. By definition, it must because it nurtures everything except those things that are important. Integrity, ethics, truth, our very heart and soul. Why? The reason is simple. Because life is giving, not getting. Last fall, as I began preparations for these podcasts, I listened to the complete Savoy and Dialed Master Takes album on YouTube. All were recorded from 1945 to 1948. I wanted to pick out songs that stood apart from the rest. I knew there had to be highlights, so outstanding, that his music had to draw you in. So I'm listening, each song starts with a theme, goes into a bird solo, goes into a trumpet or piano solo, returns to some ensemble playing, returns to the theme, and ends. Sixty of these songs is about three hours of music, and it became a little frustrating. Most all the songs pretty much sounded similar to me. The beginning themes felt about equally on par with one another. All of Bird's solos sounded about the same to my layman's ears. Few of them stopped me in my tracks. I wanted to find the deep tracks. I wanted to find something new or overlooked. I didn't want to have to utilize a track like Coco to turn you on because it's mentioned in every documentary you're ever going to come across with Bird. It may even be mentioned in every documentary about jazz that I've heard. I just didn't want to use it. But well, you know, it sounds so good. Here's a slice of cocoa for you. That was Coco, a recording in 1945. The song is based off another song called Cherokee. A young Miles Davis, having difficulty playing Cherokee himself, opted out. Dizzy Gillespie plays the trumpet part and may have played piano on the track as well. Sources differ on what actually happened. Could not keep up with the differences in the songs due to the speed and fluidity of the solos. Didn't catch any of the references or the different phrases. It might be where my not being musician failed me in my attempt to fully appreciate the music. I mean, this is the guy who basically started the bootleg industry. There are hundreds of live recordings released on some foreign or not entirely legitimate record labels. They were either recorded in house on primitive amateur recording devices like reel to reel, or from radio programs. In 1991, Mosaic Records released a seven-disc box set of Bird's recordings made by Dean Benedetti. Benedetti was a fanatic, a disciple, who followed Charlie Parker around in 1947 in California, and again in 1948 in New York, and recorded every Bird solo he could on a Sears tape recorder. He hoped to capture Bird's magic and incorporate what he played into his own playing. When Parker finished soloing, he turned the tapes off. There are a whopping 270 tracks on the box set. 77 tracks appear on disc four alone. The hiss is annoying. The cutting out from the rest of the music is also pretty annoying. But the point is that people really, really wanted to hear Bird play. He's probably the reason why we have alternate takes released on records. People wanted to hear everything he recorded, to see how his ideas evolved, how he would play something differently. My friend Rick had an album called Bird and Diz, recorded on One Day in 1950. Thelonious Monk played piano, and Buddy Rich played drums. There were four takes of the song Leapfrog alone on that record. I believe on the complete Verve box set, there are an upwards of 10 or 12 takes of the song. The song is only two to two and a half minutes long. I myself don't remember any of the differences or any one take standing out. However, I'm sure musicians could tell. Musicians wanted to study him, to see how he came up with the solos he came up with, to ask themselves why he changed things up like he did. I just wanted songs for a podcast. I initially chose 15 contenders for this podcast, and you're listening to the results of that process. But I still found the process unsatisfying. What had I missed? Why didn't they all stand out for me? Again, I think I wanted them to be, you know, immortal or something. I did not hear the songs or the solos for what they were. I could not hear the forest for the trees. Like Monk said in episode five, discrimination is important. I did not recognize or understand the difference between one thing and another. I got caught up in the noise without hearing what's important. I have a terrible time going out where there are large crowds or where there's overly loud music. Back in the day when I used to go to bars, sat quietly and listened as best as I could because I found conversations quite difficult. I misheard or didn't hear a whole lot of important chunks of the conversation because I couldn't discriminate above the din. I often heard what wasn't important rather than what was. And how many people want to hear, huh? What was that? Come again? All night. So the other day, I put Charlie Parker's With Strings album on. Several of these songs were on those early compilation albums I did not get nearly 30 years prior. A little older, with ears open a little wider, I think I started hearing what I'm supposed to. That was Everything Happens to Me, a song on Charlie Parker's With Strings album, an album I'll be listening to a lot more than I once did. Going into this podcast series, my take on jazz had been entrenched in my mind for 25 years. I liked what I liked, and I thought I didn't need to hear anything else in order to enjoy it just the same. But I'm not the same. Too many things have changed who I am. Losing a father, meeting and marrying my better half... Becoming a father myself, living in the twilight zone for four years, they all changed who I am. They all changed how I experience the world and why I experience the things I do. I am a new man at an atomic level. I think I might finally follow the advice my mother's been telling me my entire life and just go with the flow. I might just take things the way that they are and not try to make them out to be more than what I think they should be. The music of charlie parker is a new world to me let's discover him together god bless you all my love chris
0: charlie parker another one of the jazz greats who died way too young thankfully bird recorded a lot during his short lifetime his catalog is a little difficult to follow because the recordings were done for many different music labels And frequently, he recorded with other musicians, and the album would appear under those musicians' names. To make matters worse, the albums have been frequently re-released, with a different title than their original, or as part of a larger compilation, so it's a little hard to track your way through his entire career. However, Chris has a helpful list for you of Charlie Parker listening recommendations. First, the Complete Savoy Master Takes and the Complete Dial Master Takes. These cover most of the early part of Charlie Parker's career. Next, Swedish Schnapps, fun to say, and a wonderful album. Originally released in 1951, it sometimes goes under the name The Genius of Charlie Parker Number 8. Finally, Bird and Diz from 1950, which also goes under the name The Genius of Charlie Parker Number 4. Chris would be remiss if he didn't also mention Charlie Parker All-Stars Live at the Royal Roost, Volumes 1 through 4, from 1949. Diz and Bird at Carnegie Hall, from 1947 and One Night in Birdland from 1950. Chris also wants to add that if you would like to hear Bird's music in a more modern context, give these two albums a try. The first is Sonny Stitt's Endgame Brilliance, a twofer album. Try his Disc 1 recordings of Tune Up and Constellation. Second is Anthony Braxton's The Charlie Parker Project. Give a few of those a listen and then get in touch with us to let us know what you think. Our website is www.audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash audiojudo does jazz. On Twitter, at audiojudo jazz. Or email us, jazz at audiojudo.com. For a direct line to Chris with your questions or comments, email chris at audiojudo.com. Also, if you're interested in finding some non-jazz music to listen to, give our original podcast, Audio Judo, a try. You can find more at audiojudo.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk at you next time.